It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here on uh, Excited. If you're new or visiting, checking us out, we are excited to have you. Glad you're here. Uh, excited to see what God might do this morning in our midst. Uh, if you uh, are this tall or this tall, I invite you to think about sort of what does it look like to seek Jesus during this season uh, as we're sort of experimenting, right, as Easter approaches with two things. One, fasting. And fasting is defined as creating an absence in our life, removing something to make room for the presence of God. So whether you're in elementary school or you're retired, we're inviting everyone here to create a little space for the presence of God. We also have these little bookmarks that are Pray for Five. So uh, kids, if you haven't grabbed one of these, make sure to. Uh, This is where we're writing five names on here of people that we would like to experience more of Jesus. Uh, So who are those people? It can be you, it could be your brother, your sister, a classmate, whoever. Uh, But we're just creating a little space for us as families and as a larger body to seek the person of Jesus. So these are this little Pray for Five bookmarks. That's why they're circulating about. All right, enough of a sermon. So, uh, little kids, if you want to hang out with Miss Jeannie and some other kids, they're standing over there. Join them. They want to hang out with you too. If you're not in elementary school, you're stuck with me. Uh, If you haven't been with us, actually starting chat, we've been traveling through the Gospel of John. We're actually starting chapter 12. So we've been at this since last May. So we're almost a year in. Made it to chapter 12. Pretty good progress, I think. Um, so to update you on where we're at. Jesus, throughout the gospel, he's doing these signs that kind of gets him into trouble. By the end of chapter 10, he's about to be stoned. So he goes out to the other side of the Jordan. But then his friend Lazarus gets sick. So he goes back to this place called Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, Lazarus are there. Uh, he encounters Mary and Martha, he tries to meet them where they're at, but their brother is dead, right? Jesus comes, raises Lazarus from the grave. This incredible sign of the power and life-giving presence of God. But then what happens, right? There's people that respond in different ways. Some people are upset with them. Some people really love it. They're excited. But Jesus has to actually leave that area. He goes to this mountainous area towards the end of John 11, And there's all these questions of like, where is he? Is he going to make it to Passover, right? Passover is coming up. It's one of the three pilgrimage festivals in all of Israel, right? So it's springtime. And they're wondering, is Jesus going to come to Passover? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All right, a couple details important. Six days before Passover, right? So Jesus returns back to Bethany. Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's where they live. Right? So, but it's two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's back into hostile territory. Right? He was chilling in the mountains, peaceful, quiet. You know, when's the last time you went to the mountains or the hills and you got to just kind of kick back and relax? Uh, maybe that's what Jesus is doing. We're not really sure. He comes back to Bethany. 
Now, this is six days before Passover. This is important. Passover is that Thursday night, so six days before. We think this is probably Saturday night. Sabbath is Friday night through sundown on Saturday. So now they're doing a Saturday evening party at the end of the Sabbath, right before Passover is approaching. It's in Jesus' honor. We're not sure if this is like, you raised my brother from the dead party or exactly what this is, but uh, that's probably the, you know, that's the most likely raise him from the dead. Um, they're excited about who Jesus is and they're excited about the fact that he kind of like raised him from the dead. Pretty cool. Now it says here uh, that they're reclining at table. Now we don't do this a lot. Uh, so I thought I'd put a little picture up here. Uh, it's not my favorite picture, but it sort of gets to my point. So they're kind of like leaning in It's almost like, you know, I don't know, maybe you do this at home, but so they're sort of laying down while they eat on their tummy so they don't overeat. And, um, but basically you have this sort of reclining action at the table. There's a lot of details here, right? Lazarus is reclining next to Jesus, right? So this guy who's been raised from the dead is sitting at the table while laying at the table, chowing down on some pita and having some good Galilean wine. So they're hanging out, and then we introduce, right, then John says that Martha is there serving, right? So you have Jesus, you have Lazarus, and now you have Martha. All right, if you're into the New Testament, you might have heard a story before about Martha. In Luke 10, there's this picture that I think actually adds a little more nuance and flair to what's going on here in John 12. This is what Luke says uh, as sort of Mary and Martha and Jesus are kind of getting to know each other. As Jesus and his disciples, this is in the gospel, came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, right? So this is, they're coming into Bethany. This is in the gospel of Luke. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, right? So Martha welcomes them in. Mary sits at Jesus's feet. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that, she, that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You've never felt that before. <laughs> Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Right? Luke 10. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. What is Martha doing? She's serving, right? But she's distracted. She's hurried. uh, She's worried. uh, All these different things going on in her. So now we go back to John 12. Martha is again pictured as serving, right? We don't know if she's like hurried, you know, she's distracted again. She's anxious again. We don't know about her internal world in this picture, but we know that she is in the background hosting this thing trying to pull it off. And Mary, again, is at the feet of Jesus. Foot fetish or not, she is there. Perfume. This is about... John tells us, right, that she takes one pound of costly perfume. This is about 12 ounces. Later, we'll learn that this is valued at 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So almost a year's salary. This is expensive perfume. Now, usually what happens when you enter a house for a party, someone will wash your feet at the door, right? Because you're often wearing sandals, your feet get grimy. They've just walked from the mountains to Bethany. 
Uh, and we don't know exactly how, what happens. They don't tell us. So we don't know if Jesus gets his feet washed at the door and then he shows up and she sort of does this uh, perfume anointing slash hair drying washing on dirty feet or clean feet. We're not sure. But one thing we do know is in the first century, what she does is a little bit scandalous. Now, we wouldn't think of this because we're used to women having their hair down and not not being this sort of odd thing. But in this moment, N.T. Wright, this won't be projected, says this. This is roughly the equivalent at a modern polite dinner party of a woman hitching up her long skirt to the tops of her thighs. You can imagine the onlooker's reaction. Right, so she's doing something in this moment that is a little bit scandalous. Not only taking her hair down and poured out a year's salary worth of perfume, but then she is taking her hair down and using her hair to dry off or clean off his feet. Now I want you to just think about for a second, right? So you have Mary on the ground, a year's salary, doing something potentially indecent, You have Martha over there, who's the good, dutiful servant, taking care of everything. You wonder how Martha feels at this moment. Like, it wasn't bad enough that she was just inviting him in last time. Now she's spending a year's worth of perfume and potentially embarrassing the hostess. We don't know how Martha feels, but we know how Judas feels. This is how he responds. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why isn't this perfume, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, a few things to say here, right? We've sort of leaned in a little bit to Mary and a little bit to Martha. Let's look at Judas. First, John tells us he is a disciple of Jesus, right? So he, just as the other guys, right? He's called, he's invited to be in this inner core. He, second, we use the way of Jesus, at least from an external perspective. Second, we learn here, right, that he will betray Jesus. But I want us to be really careful at this moment because no one else knows this, right? These are editorial notes, No one else in that room is like, oh, Judas, obviously he's going to betray him. No one else knows this. And we know this for a few reasons, which I'll sort of go through. One, we see in chapter six, there's this really interesting foreshadowing that John does. But they have this moment where Jesus produces bread that feeds thousands of people. And you have all these people that are like, whoa, we're going to make you king. So exciting, right? And then Jesus starts to get into the details of what does it mean to follow him? And people are like, yeah, no. They walk away. And Jesus asks the 12, what are you going to do? And they're like, all right, we're in. And he's like, that's awesome. And then he says this, yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Chapter 6, that's an editorial note again. None of them know. You'll see their response is like, what? None of them are thinking, you know, it's obviously Judas. Like, duh, look at the way he deals with the money. No one notices. John, oh, Judas, he's the selfish one. No one sees it coming. John does, right? Because he knows in retrospect what happens. 
And Jesus knows. No one else knows. No one else sees inside Judas's heart and is like, here it comes. All right, so back to chapter 12. Mary anoints Jesus. It's this extravagant offering. And Judas is like, dude, you're wasting this money. This money could be better spent. Now, if I didn't have the editorial note saying he didn't care about the poor, and if I didn't have the editorial note saying he just wanted to have more money in the bag so he could steal it, I would be like, Judas, you got a point. Right? If Judas had said something like, you know what? The truth is we're an itinerant band. We're practically homeless. Maybe we should save this money and have it as a way to like not be homeless and depending on people all the time. Like it could be an income source. I'd be like, Judas, good point. Right? So what do we do with that? Well, one thing we do know about Judas, he's the carrier of the money bag. But we also know that in a little bit, in less than a week, he will actually betray Jesus for money. Right? For 30 pieces of silver, he will betray him, uh, which is about five weeks salary. After 13, when he... We also know that at the Lord's Supper, in chapter 13, when he gets off the table, right, and he leaves to betray Jesus, again, they have no idea. The disciples have no idea that he is going to betray. Do you know what they think in their heads? This is what John tells us. They think that he is going out to maybe provide a little bit more for the Passover or to serve the poor. Judas is in the midst of betraying Jesus and they think, man, this is just a really good guy. He's going to serve the poor. You know, more power to him. No one knows what is going on in Jesus' heart or Judas's heart other than Jesus. Marion Meyer Thompson, who's a New Testament theologian, she has this good contrast between Judas and uh, Mary. She says this, Judas thus stands out in contrast to Mary. She spends generously what she has to honor Jesus, while Judas greedily grafts what does not belong to him to serve himself. So you have Mary, you have Lazarus, you have Judas, you have Martha. And this is how Jesus replies into this moment. He says this, leave her alone the day of my burial. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So right off the bat, what does he do? Jesus defends Mary, he says this specific word, God intended that this perfume be used in this way, right? Just as Jesus is consistently trying to do what the Father says, trying to listen to the Father and share what the Father has to say, right? So in this moment, Mary is aligned with the Father's will. Jesus offers a few words here about why. One is, it was for the day of my burial. Well, we know he's not being buried today. So what she means is burial preparation, So what is happening right now is that they know, or Jesus knows, he is going to die within the week. And that this moment becomes an anointing that happens before the triumphal entry, before Jesus is crucified. Caiaphas, the high priest, last week was like, it's better for one man to die to save the nation than for the nation to be destroyed. And Jesus will end up dying to save the people. 
like Nicodemus after Jesus dies, right? Nicodemus gets all this aloe. He gets like 75 or 100 pounds of aloe, and I think it's myrrh. And he anoints Jesus' body after. So Mary, before he is preparing his body with this costly oil. Beasley Murray, another theologian, says this. It won't be projected. Mary has recognized the dignity and greatness of Jesus. And in an exemplary action, has shown the others whom they have in their midst. Right? Just like if a king was in the room and they were preparing for his burial, like no expense would be spared. And Jesus or Mary is like, through her action, she's like, hey, we have one that is greater than a king among us. He's not just an average person. This is the creator of the universe, the king of the kingdom. Does he not deserve to have the most costly of perfume on his body to prepare him for his death? And yet, I think when I read this, like, totally true, awesome. Judas's words haunt me a little bit in this passage. Like, wait, so Jesus, what are you saying about the poor? Like, do you care about the poor? Because this makes me a little, like, uncomfortable or throws me off or whatever. I had this friend in the Peace Corps. His name was Jesse. And Jesse's theology was totally based off a of Jesus Christ superstar. <laughs> He had, I don't think he'd ever gone to church. He'd never read the Bible, but he had memorized Jesus Christ Superstar. And there's this one song called Everything's Okay. In part. And so from Judas's perspective, and there's no editorial note. And so he's like, dude, I know what happens in this scene. Jesus doesn't care about the poor. And I sat there like, no, you're wrong. But then I couldn't, like, figure out how to articulate because I was, like, pretty new in my faith. I was like, I'm, I'm positive you're wrong, but I literally can't disprove your Jesus Christ superstar uh, theology. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best this morning to redeem that moment. <laughs> First, Jesus is citing Deuteronomy 15.11. Listen to this. This is what he is citing. This is the context that he is referring to when he says this statement. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them Whenever they need. So if you see anyone who is poor and struggling, you as the people of God on earth, you should be generous towards them. Don't harden your heart. Don't close your fist on your money because you feel insecure. Give. Right? Continues. Verse 10. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God, to quote then, in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Right? This is the quote then. There will always be poor in the land. This is not a justification like there's always going to be poor. Because what follows? Therefore, because there are poor people among you, I command you. I don't invite you. I don't say if it works for you. I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. That is what Jesus is echoing back to. He is not saying, oh, who cares? They don't matter. He is saying, actually, this is a huge part of our tradition. This is a huge part of our identity and who we are, that we care for the poor among us. So then what is he saying? 
right? If this is what he's echoing to, I do think he is saying in a very real way, like, hey, guys, there's only one time in the history of the universe that God is going to die. Never going to happen again. I want you to know the significance of this event. This is important. And the father has arranged things so that Mary can sort of elevate my status among you so you know who I am or even begin to glimpse in the smallest ways how big and glorious, important in this moment and the extent of what I am going to do. Two, N.T. Wright has this great quote. He says this, the only explanation of why Jesus would have this happen is that Jesus believed that his coming death would be the action through which the world as a whole, including the world of poverty and all that went with it, would be put to rights. That actually there isn't a disconnection between Jesus' death and the world of poverty, oppression, and suffering, right? Jesus has to die, be resurrected, so that the kingdom can come, so that evil, injustice, and wrong on earth are dealt with. That actually there's a perfect continuity between Jesus' care for the poor and Jesus' death on a cross which will initiate in the future the coming kingdom. Now, if I haven't convinced you at this point, let me just go through a quick whirlwind. Jesus starts his ministry by citing Isaiah 61 in Luke 4. Do you know how that starts? goes like this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, if he's saying, hey, don't care for the poor, they don't matter, surely this is an odd way to frame your ministry. Jesus is concise. He says that his disciples and prostitutes, those who are marginalized and oppressed. In Matthew 25, he says that his disciples will be the ones who clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and visit the imprisoned. In Luke 12, 33, Jesus literally says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. He will tell a rich man in Mark 10, give away all that you have to the poor. And then in a moment, right, in the beginning of chapter 13, he will meet with his disciples at this Passover dinner. And clearly in this like parallel fashion, he will then go wipe his disciples' feet. And chapter 12 begins with Mary wiping Jesus' feet with this oil, this ointment, this perfume. Chapter 13 starts with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And then he says to them, go and do likewise. Right? Jesus isn't standing there at the beginning of chapter 12 like, hey, waste your money on me. I matter more than anyone, you know? Because in a chapter, he will then wipe his disciples' feet and ask them to be servants in the world. He is going to give himself on behalf of the world. All right, so this is sort of the text for today. You have, you know, you have Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus at this table reclining. You have this beautiful worship. And then you have Judas sort of speaking out and being like, I don't know, sort of grumbly. And then Jesus defending him. So what does this passage then look like in everyday life for us? How does it translate from 2,000 years ago into the normal patterns of our life? Now, if you're new to the Bible, I was trying to think of like, you know, if you're not used to reading the Bible, uh, if you're not used to like taking a scripture and making it sort of feel live and real, 
I think one thing you can do, particularly if you're reading through the Gospels, and even just after a sermon you can do just as an exercise, is just do a simple exercise where you just sort of look at the characters and, and ask yourself, who do I most relate to in this story? I think it's a good exercise to do. I just want us to do it real quick this morning. Who do you most relate to this morning? And as you hear this story, do you relate to Mary? Who in this moment, she doesn't care about what anyone thinks about around her. She doesn't care. And she takes a year's salary and wastes it in worship at Jesus' feet. She doesn't care what other people are thinking about her with her hair. She is in this moment with Jesus doing something to love him. Do you relate to Mary? Serving, she's hosting. Maybe you relate to Martha. Martha's serving, she's hosting, she's doing good things. But maybe you relate to, you know, the picture of Luke where she's, she's kind of distracted. She's caught up in all these moving pieces She's busy. She's hurried. And maybe in this moment, she's missing the best thing in order to do something that is good. Or maybe you relate to Judas. I know most of us are like, I don't want to relate to Judas. <laughs> Judas is at the table, Judas is with Jesus. Judas is saying things that are admirable. But he's also wearing a mask at that moment. Everyone around him thinks, man, Judas is such a good guy. But they don't know his heart. Do you feel a little bit like that this morning? Everyone around you thinks, oh man, man, that, that person... I really admire that person. I really like that person. But internally, you know that you've missed the mark. That you're no longer aligned with Jesus' purposes in the world, but you're just something for your own benefit. That's Judas. Or maybe you relate to one of the unnamed people in this story. Maybe it's a, a cook in the kitchen. Maybe it's a person at the door. Maybe it's one of the unnamed people reclining at the table. And in the midst of this story and in the midst of your life with Jesus, you feel unknown. You feel unnamed. And you wonder, why can't I be Lazarus? Why can't I be next to Jesus? Why can't I be Mary? When is my turn? And you feel like you're just sort of in the background, floating, unseen, and unknown. As you sit in this story, who do you relate to? And then as you sort of settle in there, what is God's invitation to you? What is Jesus' word to you? We hear him defend Mary. What does he say to you? It's one thing for someone to come up here and give a sermon. It's another thing when we allow the text to read our hearts. We can read the Bible all day, but I'd have to say Bible to read us. Who are we in the story and what does God have to say to us?
And if this isn't enough time, this is something you can reflect on through the week. This is a way you can just approach the Gospels in particular. The story, how do you enter into that? What does God have to say? The second question is along similar lines, but it's on this idea of what is worthy worship? Now, I, I don't say this in the sense of like worship, like what is a good song? Like we had awesome songs this morning, right? But worship isn't just singing. And by worthy, I don't mean like a good performance. I mean like what is worship that brings honor to God? Romans 12.1 says something like, you know, when we offer our bodies in a living sacrifice to God, like that is worship that is acceptable, that is pleasing to God. What does it look like for us to live lives of worship? One of the things we see in this text is that there's all kinds of objections to Mary's moment of worship. There's cultural objections. Your hair's not right. You know, what are you doing in this moment? There's pragmatic objections. The money should be spent other ways. There's all kinds of pressure in this text from your salary. Do what God intended, right? Which was her wasting a year's salary in this moment of worship with Jesus. And I guess I just ask in this moment, what does it look like for us to worship Jesus with all of who we are? There's all kinds of pressures in our lives that push us away from that, that push us actually towards looking to one another and looking to our neighbors to say, am I on the right track? And rather than evaluating worship by who God is and what that invites, how that invites us to respond, we look out and say, well, I don't know, she's kind of doing this or she's kind of doing that. I'm a little better than her, right? So we evaluate what is worthy worship based on what our friends are doing, what our neighbors are doing, versus the glory that is deserved by the God of the universe. We settle for lives of puny worship. When Jesus, the king of the universe, dies for us, is raised for us, and wants to give us newness of life, what is worthy worship? Like if you were to ask God today, God, as I live my life, as I go about my rhythms, does my life sing of your goodness? Does it sing of your glory? And what do I need to worship that my life is actually a living embodiment of worship to you? Not like, did I read my Bible today? Did I do this? Did I attend church? Great. Good things. But let's not confuse the best things with the good things we can do. What is God's invitation? What does it look like for us to fully worship Jesus for who he is? I guess one question I would have is this. Right? When was the last time that you radically invested in some sort of unpredictable, unplanned, uh, maybe sort of potentially like some people might be like, I don't know about that, you know, way in love with Jesus, right? So it's invested your time, money, talent, and it was like, huh, yeah, that didn't make sense according to what everyone else was doing around me, but that makes sense as an act of worship of the God of the universe. And I would say if there aren't blips on your life of faith screen that was like, yeah, it's kind of doing this thing, you know, just like everyone else. And then boom, it was like, whoa, yeah. God called me to this moment where I was like, oh yeah, that was different. 
You know, and you maybe can't sustain that forever, but there is this sense of, whoa, I went for it. When was the last time, if you look at your life, you felt like, If it's been a while, I would invite you to circle back with Jesus and be like, you know what? I want my life to sing of my worship of you. God, help me. Now, if you're wondering, like, how to do that, I might just suggest something super simple. Just read through this passage each day this week and just ask God, God, each time, maybe just set a, just ask him and just say, read it through and then just ask him, God, what does worthy worship of your name look like for me right now? And just sit, set a timer for like two or three minutes and just wait and listen. Put it on God. Let him be the one who directs your worship. God, what does that look like? And then, what, and then just respond. The last question for this morning is this. How do we learn from Judas? You're like, learn from Judas? I don't want to learn from Judas. Well, I think we need to for a few reasons. One, all of the disciples, like Judas, right? They're all invited to follow Jesus. None of them are perfect. If you read the Gospels, you're like, Peter, what are you doing again? You know, like Peter is falling on his face. Judas clearly takes it to another level, though. As I've sort of thought and prayed about the person of Judas, one thing in particular has stood out to me. Judas is entrusted to carry the money, right? He's entrusted. At some level, they're like, Judas, you know what? I think you should carry the money. And everyone's like, yeah, Judas, you know? There's no riot depicted of like, you know, really, it should be James, you know? It's like, no, no, no. They kind of go with it. They go with Judas, And then the money, the thing he is entrusted with, becomes the means of his betrayal. He actually ends up caring more about the money that he is entrusted with than he does for Jesus. And I think there's actually a really profound and important lesson for us here. God entrusts us all with all kinds of things. He trusts us with jobs. He trusts us with children if we have families. He trusts us with spouses. He trusts us with uh, bank accounts. He trusts us with friendships. He trusts us with neighbors. He trusts us with all kinds of things. I think we need to be careful, like Judas, that we don't end up trusting in and focusing on the things that God has given us more than we focus on Jesus and lose our to allow. I think it is just super easy to allow work, to allow family, to allow parenting, to allow our bank accounts, financial security, whatever, to become the number one and Jesus to become the number two. And what we learn from Jesus is this is the process of betrayal. This is how we end up in a really nasty place in the Garden of Gethsemane, betraying the one that we love the most. Let us learn from the life of Jesus, from the life of Judas, certainly the life of Jesus as well. I want to invite the worship team up. And we're going we're gonna to lean into a song that's called, I Surrender. And what we're going to try and do, we're just going to lean into a moment right now where we're in song, 
trying to say to Jesus, all right, I surrender my life to you. That my life might be worthy worship. That I might be able to keep you at the center. Not end up worshiping the things you have given me and trusted me to carry. So I'm just going to pray for us that our hearts would be soft, that we would be able to hear God's speaking voice and nudging us closer and closer into his presence. Jesus, we love you. We want more of you. We are broken creatures who, more than we would like, end up focusing on ourselves rather than you. God, I pray for those of us who relate to Mary, God, that you would just keep us in that place of worship, keep us in that place of softness, keep us in that place of abandonment to your will and purposes in the world. If we relate to Martha, God, help us to do good things without losing track of what is most important in the busyness and hurry of life. If we relate to Judas, God, help our externals to match our internals. God, that what we do in the world is actually coming from a place of love. Not trying to trick other people in our life and in our world to thinking we are closer to you than we actually are. If we relate to that person in the room who's unnamed and unknown and feels outside, God, I pray for your just beautiful and great inclusion this morning that they would know in the deepest part of their being the depth of your love. God, I ask in your mercy and grace that we would worship you for all you are worth. Love you, Spirit. Move in our hearts and our minds that we may know you and love you and follow you the rest of the days of our life.